0: All right, we are live. Hi, and welcome to uh, Red Reviews. This is our 18th uh, one, but our first one of 2022. Thanks for coming, Justin.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Corey. It's great to be back. A little bit of a hiatus. I had surgery. My sinuses and my nose went well. I have a full nose now, which I've never had in my life. So that's pretty exciting (laughs) to be able to breathe fully out of both nostrils and sleep better at night. Less pain. It's great. So, yeah. As I was saying before the you know before we got started you know new year new me in a certain way I guess right as they say sure. right but uh, I don't want to become too much of an influencer. <laughs> <laughs> it's not like I'm going to be showing my ass on Instagram anytime soon unless enough <laughs> people want that and in which case maybe we can make that happen I don't know sure, I don't know can. how that works with being a state employee and supplemental income I have no idea. <laughs> I suppose that's that worth
0: out. looking into yeah yeah I bet you it is <laughs> before we start selling catalogs.
1: Right, right, exactly. <laughs> calendars, calendars the, yeah. yeah, catalogs, <laughs> catalogs for all the sweet merch. That's right. Know, there we go. Because you have merch, right? I do. So actually, yes, it's, uh, yes.
0: On Tea Public, I should add go. a link to the Link Tree in the show notes and everything.
1: You should. You should. Yeah, yeah. You give me that merch link. I'll put that in my podcast stuff on my website too. Yeah. And
0: and sometimes you'll have like the slogans that I put up in the corner
1: will yeah. be
0: on a shirt. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I I love that one. That quote is gender critical feminist turfs are actually fascist. I agree. I totally agree. <laughs> you know? I think that's I think that's a fair point, right?
0: I spent uh, I spent a not not insignificant amount of time over the holidays arguing with turfs on Twitter. So and well, losing before- feminist friends because they were apologizing for turfs for some reason. Really,
1: really. Yeah. So, b- before we get into the book tonight, I would love to talk about this for a second. Sure. Because, like, I'm so not online in the way that, like, other people are, right? Like, I've been taking a long social media hiatus. It's been wonderful for my mental health. <laughs> it must it's be. It's just been, it's been wonderful. <laughs> I, I don't, I really don't miss it all that much. But so, so, uh, you know, what, what is, like, the main line of turfs? Because, like, my main thing is, is it basically they don't consider, trans women to be real women they just sort of and that and that by existing trans women like muddy the waters and therefore make the women's movement weaker is that like their point of view
0: the one that i've been hearing the most is that they aren't it's that it's it's not only that trans women aren't women it's that also they're predators who are using this as an excuse to invade women's spaces
1: well, isn't that the same argument that, like, hardcore right-wingers say about, like, trans people going into bathrooms? I mean – It is it's exactly
0: quite... that same argument. Or,
1: <laughs> or when we were kids, they would say, you know, homosexuality will lead to bestiality and all that kind of stuff.
0: 100%.
1: Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's the same you know,
0: reactionary bullshit. Right.
1: It really is. <laughs> it's like – it reminds me very much of people who used to bitch about uh, rock and roll, right? So, like yep. – People say, oh, rock and roll is a scourge, right? But then – but you have to understand the people who were saying that in the 1950s, these were people who grew up on like the Dixieland jazz of like the 20s and their parents hated that and thought that was a moral aberration and yeah. like before – like there's the – yeah. So like this whole like – you know, if this was the case, right? Like let's, let's take their argument at face value and say that's actually true. Wouldn't there be like widespread – like wouldn't there be widespread news coverage of like – trans abusers of people like and they're clearly fucking isn't if anything it's the reverse yep. that trans people are constantly harassed there would abused. be hundreds
0: of cases there would be hundreds right. thousands of cases of it and then you find there's one case and they have to misquote everything and tell you lies about it in order mm-hmm. to make it fit the narrative like it's right. just not a thing that happens
1: it's so absurd, <laughs> and it seems to me like it's the same. Like it's, and no wonder, like it's sort of this sort of like strange bedfellows with the right. Because yep. I remember back, I think it was last year. Was do you remember the sort of Atlantic letter, the the, the letter that Atlantic Magazine published about freedom of speech and all this, you know, same the plate bullshit? The support of J.K. Rowling. Yes, thing. that was yeah. the big thing, and everybody lost their shit because like Noam Chomsky signed it, and I'm like, guys, like. Of course he did. Like, <laughs> I mean, when it comes to this stuff, he's, he's, it's, he's been fairly consistent. Like, but, but the whole point of that letter, cause it's all made up of when people bitch about like, oh my God, like the morals are falling apart or like, you know, the thing about freedom of speech, they always speak, notice that they always speak in generalities. They yeah. never speak in concrete, real examples which actually ties into the book we'll be talking about tonight. Perfect. But it, but it's they never ever talk about anything in the concrete. They always talk about like so, like you know, teachers or something. Like teachers are being afraid to teach in classes and afraid to read these books. And it's like, okay, well, what example are you showing me, right? Yeah. The one that Matt Taibbi comes back to all the time was a white professor. I think it was like a white professor reading something and saying the N word and. Okay. The problem the students had with it was not so much that he had said the N-word, but it was really two things. One, that he had not provided some kind of like content warning saying, hey, I'm going to say the N-word while I read this. Right. And two, the fact that he would presume to be – as a white man, think it would be socially acceptable in our age to read the N-word out loud in the classroom without letting students know you're going to do it. Yeah. That little fact of like not telling – like – Students are I think most students are not completely utterly fucking insane. I think most of them are fairly reasonable people that's <laughs> yep. why they're in college. They're not idiots. Is that like they don't, I don't think they have, I don't think students or younger people have any problem with dealing with difficult sub subjects. I think the problem they have is the way in which they're framed and who is framing them, right? Yep. And those discussions are never they're never included in the conversation. They're almost yep. never included because that's inconvenient as you said earlier, it's inconvenient to the narrative. Yeah. So you know i mean it's really sad like freedom of speech is something that should be fought for and 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 should be something that we care about but at the same time like the the reactionaries and the right wing have poisoned the well on that so bad that you know it's it's i don't even <laughs> want to talk about it anymore largely because yeah. it's it's just been so shittily. it's just been so so p- polluted in the discourse Yeah. Um, but yeah man fuck turfs i mean my whole thinking is like you know i mean these are also the same people who are also like you know they were educating like postmodernism and post-structuralism about how gender truly is an identity and that it can sort of mold and change and like they were like they believe that to a certain extent right but when it yep. but there's like a hard line about biology and i'm like isn't that the same thing that the right gets their fucking panties in a bunch yep. right yep and it's if like you're yeah. gonna
0: if you're gonna reduce women down to reproductive organs then how are you mm-hmm. different than the religious right
1: right right or the like creepy Like the creepy politicians who think it's like socially acceptable to examine the genitals of like teenagers who want to play sports in certain arenas. Like it's like, it's ridiculous. I mean, what planet do we think this is socially acceptable? (laughs) And you know, I mean, that's, but it's all part of the fact that we live in a crazy situation where people are not willing to actually study the real concrete things about a certain situation in order to to develop a full-fledged opinion right. about something. Yeah. They're not willing to actually um, understand the relationship between knowledge and practice. And that's my segue. There we go. So <laughs> tonight's book is another sort of uh, – we're going deep into theory tonight. Um, and it is a collection of writings published by Verso Books in their Revolution series. And it's uh, On Practice and Contradiction by Mao, Mao Zedong the leader of the Chinese Revolution, the head of the Chinese Communist Party and the People's Republic of China until his death in 1976, um, and Marxist theoretician. Um, uh, Mao's influence over the global communist movement uh, is about as big, if not bigger, than Lenin's was in the sense of continuing influence. But he very much saw himself as an extension of Lenin. Um, in the introduction, which was written by uh, sort of rock star philosopher Slavoj Žižek, and we'll do a Žižek book at one of these points. I'm not sure when, which one and when, but we'll do a Žižek book at some point, sure. um, is that there are really three theoretical changing points in the history of Marxism. One is Marx and Langels, you know, the OGs. Right. Then you have Lenin and the formulations of Lenin, and then you have the formulations of Mao. And really what separate them is concrete material conditions. So Marx and Engels were writing mid mid to late 19th century. They were writing in the emergence of capitalism. Um, And so their analyses of the capitalist system and its contradictions were rooted in those material conditions. With Lenin, it was the development of imperialism as a theoretical framework. As, you know, as the 20th century sort of rolled on and capitalism morphed and changed based on, again, on material circumstances to develop the imperialist mode of capitalism, which Lenin wrote about. And then Mao's sort of great contribution to Marxist ideas is blending all of those along with the concrete historical uh, um, context of China, which was a largely rural peasant society as was russia but china even more so and so mao's writing is very interesting like like lenin he writes in a very straightforward style um you know and he's trying his damnedest to try to articulate some really complex ideas in a way that people can understand and i think he does a pretty good a pretty good job of it but theoretically, at least in the sort of the theme of this collection of his writings is the relationship between understanding the role of practice as a revolutionary and the role of contradiction mm. in understanding society. And so the collection of writings in this book span from the early 1930s all the way up to 1964. So it's a period of like 30 years. Okay. And throughout the, ex- and throughout the, the writings – you get a sense of how Mao evolved over time and how he sort of concretized a lot of his thought and also where he changed. So, for example, in a lot of the earlier writings from the 30s, um, he's much he has much more glowing things to say about Stalin, for example. Oh, okay. By the time that you get to the 1950s, especially in his critique of Stalin's economic problems of the USSR you have a more critical approach to Stalin where he's right. where he's really laying out some of the more critical uh, components of his own thought in contradiction to, to, to Stalin, which is I think important because in terms of understanding the history of China in relationship to the sort of global socialist communist movement, there is a really profound split that happens in the 1950s. Um, and they call it the Sino-Soviet split in sort of international relations where the Soviet union and the people's Republic of China basically went their separate ways. Um, and, and a lot of it was for theoretical differences. Some of it was for over sort of practical differences and, um, some of Mao's writings and on Stalin's writing reflects that divide. And then, you know, and then probably the most, um, like wild and freewheeling part of the book is the last chapter, which is um, a talk on questions of philosophy, uh, which was from August 18th, 1964. So this is right, it's literally like right before the beginnings of the Cultural Revolution, which is this huge, you know, social movement that happens in China from the mid 60s to the, the early 70s of, you know, sort of, Sort of reinvigorating the revolutionary spirit of the People's Republic of China. Ultimately, unfortunately, the, the Cultural Revolution by some is seen as a failure and it led to the sort of counter revolution, um, in China in the form of, of Deng Xiaoping and the sort of liberalization of their economies, which we've right, talked right, about before. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so I, um, I really liked reading this book. I think reading Mao is interesting because he's, You know, it's – he writes like a teacher, which I think is important to understand because he was a teacher. So in his earlier life, before he was a revolutionary, he was a teacher in in sort of local rural provinces, Um, was educated as a teacher, got a pretty traditional education um, and – or what he as He would call it a bourgeois education and then became sort of radicalized by seeing the conditions that uh, people were living under and obviously – The history of China, which, you know, in the 20th century, China was largely under the imperial thumb of both the British Empire and the Japanese Empire. Mm -hmm. Um, And so for many, many years, the Chinese revolutionary forces and were made up of Mao and the Red Army. And then you have the Kuomintang or the Chinese nationalist forces, originally led by Sun Yat-sen and then later on by Chiang Kai-shek, which is probably a name most people know. Um, that they were both actually united in a united front against the Japanese imperialist encroachment, which is uh, kind of the setup for the first essay in the book from Mao, which is A Single Spark Can Start a Prairie Fire, which is from January 5th, 1930. And the basic lesson of this chapter, this essay that he wrote, is that um, don't underestimate the power of small movements because as he says, a single spark can can start a prairie fire. What he means by that is that there are those within the party who want everything to grow too fast, too quickly for its own good. Mm. And he argues that that's, there's nothing necessarily wrong with that if the conditions warrant it. But if the conditions do not warrant it, then one should develop a policy wherein you actually study what's really going on in the ground and then develop either military strategy or political strategy concordantly. Um, and so – that's kind of the the gist of that you know chapter, and it really gets to the heart of like of I think one of the big takeaways of the book, and one of the big takeaways of Mao's thought, which is that interrelationship between theory and practice, um, and that you know practice theory doesn't mean all that much if you're not putting it into some kind right. of practical work, so that's kind of the 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 um the sort of lesson there, and uh, and so. And and one of the things is that people realize people just sort of assume because the Chinese Revolution happened in 1949. That's when the Communists came to power in China. They defeated the Nationalist forces. What people don't understand is that that was essentially like a 30-year struggle. Right. Um, that that it went on for decades. Most people assumed like post World War II was a few years between the Nationalist forces and the revolutionary forces, and that they fought it out and the, and the revolutionaries won. But no, it was a, it was a conflict that had gone on for decades and decades and decades. And I think that's. Like really, really relevant to understanding how Mao saw this. I think Mao was sort of the master of the long game. And Mm -hmm. if you, if you read his writing, he constantly talks about things, not in like days or years, but he talks about them in decades or centuries. Um, he, he, he's constantly sort of thinking about well we're not here now but in this many decades if we commit ourselves to it we will be there and it's so interesting like how right he was about like anticipating china's rise because he was i don't think it happened the way he necessarily wanted it to right. but it did happen <laughs> um so i'll leave it there for a second before i move on to the next essay and and uh but that's kind of a good kind of uh, start to our discussion tonight
0: sure that sounds uh i i i think like you kind of mentioned the uh the idea of putting theory into practice and that seems like that's something that a lot of leftists are always kind of working around trying to figure out the best way to do that like that's something you see in anarchism you see that in marxism you see that all over the place
1: yeah well and i think that the real lesson right is to understand and that actually moves us into um the second essay which is um, the second essay from the from the book is from May 1930, and it's called Opposed Book Worship. And in this, he lays out, you know, pretty clearly, like he says, like, unless you have investigated a problem, you will be deprived of the right to speak on it, which is kind of great. Like, it's interesting yeah. that he wrote this in like 1930, because, you know, a couple <laughs> decades before, a completely different from a person from a completely different background, a philosopher by the name of Ludwig Wittgenstein wrote a Philosophical tract called Tractical Logico Philosophicus. And the last S sentence of that philosophical work is um, on matters one does not know of, one must be silent. So it's like, <laughs> so it's so interesting the parallels between this, like, you know, this sort of like Austrian or like German English philosopher writing in like the 1910s and mao writing in the 1930s and they kind of come to the same conclusion well, i think that's and how neat.
0: relevant it is in the modern age <laughs> right that too right and how
1: that's like a it's kind of a great universal truth right which is that if you don't really have much to if you don't have anything if, if, valuable to say don't say anything at all right if, if you and, have not
0: investigated at all then just shut up
1: <laughs> yes and but what does he mean by opposing book worship? So what he means by that is that Marx, as Marxist, we should constantly be understanding theory. We should be reading theory. We should be understanding. We should be growing our knowledge. But at the same time, you know, this study must be integrated. This is him, him saying this must be integrated with our country's actual conditions. We need books, but we must overcome book worship, which is divorced from the actual situation. Again, he's right. constantly calling on you to get a sense of where you're at. And so he talks about how, you know, um, we have to understand the different social classes. One of the ways that we develop a revolutionary strategy is understanding this different social strata within a society. You know, so so where you're living, what are the different types of social classes? Right now, obviously in Marxism, we we largely break people down into workers and owners. Right, but within that primary contradiction, we have sort of ancillary contradictions, which is something we'll talk about a little bit later. But, like, there are sort of smaller secondary contradictions. So you have, like, people like me who's, like, sort of, like, white collar, I work in an office nine to five versus somebody who works in an Amazon warehouse. Like we're both workers, right? But our working experience is completely different. So how can I speak about the working class if I don't understand his or her predicament in an Amazon warehouse or somebody who's an Uber driver or somebody who's working in a restaurant with me who's somebody who sits in front of a computer all day, right? Like my experience is valued, but so is theirs. And you really can't understand the dynamics and fight back until you understand those different components within class right. structures. Um, so, and then he talks about how, like, you know, how do you investigate things? Right. So he talks about how you can like set up a meeting. So he talks about how, like, you know, hold a fact fighting meeting and, you know, and make sure there's more than yeah, at least three people so that you can come up with a general concept of something. And, you know um, what kind of people should you get? And he basically says like all kinds of people with the exception of like, reactionary assholes um and um he talks about how you know come with a detailed outline like just don't show up and just talk about whatever like come prepared to talk about specific things and ask people specific questions take notes ask deeper questions he gives you basically like a little way of how to conduct a meeting which is kind of helpful like (laughs) generally when it comes to like theoretical writing and this is i think what makes Mao and Lenin fun is that they do this where they will do like deep theoretical conception conceptual work within an essay and then within that exact same essay they were going to give you like practical stuff where it's like you do this you do this you do this and I thought that was really really cool um and I think it's really relevant like especially like how to conduct a meeting right because the the thing about being a part of like the party for socialism and liberation which I'm a member of um we pride ourselves on being professional revolutionaries. That's how we describe ourselves, right? Okay. And the way that we try to pitch to people is, you know, the, the work, the, the, the ruling class, the owning class, the capitalists, they're extremely organized, right? You know, they, they know what they're doing. They know how to, they know how to organize. They know how to fight back against the workers, right? Yeah. Which means that we have to be just as professional and just as organized and just as strategic as they are, if not more, right? Right. And so that's what he's getting at in, oppose book worship. Okay. Um, he also he also gets to it in another little essay sort of halfway through the book called Combat Liberalism where he basically says like if you do all this stupid shit then you're just a liberal and you suck. Where it's like, <laughs> where it's like, you know, let things drift if they do not affect one personally. Not to obey orders but to give pride of place to one's own opinions constantly without thinking of others. Um, uh, hear incorrect views without rebutting them. Telling stories to see someone harming the interests of the masses to work half-heartedly without a definite plan or direction basically lays out, like if you're doing all of these things, you're just helping the ruling class and you're not actually, you're not actually moving the needle on your revolutionary right. aspirations with your comrades. Right. And it's a process where we're constantly checking each other. So like within a revolutionary movement, regardless of its persuasion, like you have to think a lot about like self-criticism and that's one of the other big components of Mao's ideas and Maoism generally is this idea of, it's basically three words. It's unity, criticism, unity. So we seek unity, but we only achieve unity through criticism and hashing out those details and hashing out those differences to reach a new unity. Um, But yeah, so like that's kind of uh, the thing I like about, again, it's that mix of theory and practice.
0: Yeah, I think, I, I haven't read much Mao. But what I did read, there was quite the emphasis on being able to take in criticism from people and 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 take it in good faith and try and work around that criticism, try and solve whatever problem was within. Uh, his emphasis was with the party, but yep. But that's it's a very. I thought it was a great idea. Like you have to be able to see I'm wrong in this area, and let's fix it.
1: Right, right, and I and I agree with that. Like it's it's. That and in the the large one of the two larger essays of the book on the correct handling of contradictions from 1957, he largely says the same thing. Where it's like we need to have vigorous debate and criticism within our party and within our within our state, and but we should never lose sight of the fact that sometimes those spaces open up the possibility of reactionaries, counter revolutionaries, and that we must be on guard against that. Right but at the same time having that dialogue open for a truly revolutionary and and moving you know forward thinking you know forward moving government and society um, and i think that's probably where like you know that maybe criticisms of mao right so like if you're somebody who's not a marxist leninist you're coming from a different perspective maybe you could see like so basically it's like we want freedom of speech for certain types of people but not for other types of people <laughs> And, and isn't that sort of like, quote unquote, authoritarian or whatever? And he sort of addresses that on the correct handling of contradictions. And we can kind of get into that in a minute. Okay. Um, the two really super important essays in the book are both from the 1930s, both from, I think, 1937. And, uh, and they're on practice and on contradiction. Um, uh, I... Uh, Oh, we, that's right. We're doing a live stream, right? So if there's yep. like questions, I'm happy to take but questions. We just
0: have a couple, a couple comments from our friend, some random geek. Um, okay. Uh, one is uh, the, <laughs> we need to have vicious debate. The online left is very good at that.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. So I think the only issue, right. Is that we, we, we had unity. We have a whole lot of criticism <laughs> and we haven't figured out the other unity. Right. Yeah, so that's like right. that's the goal, right. Is to have that sort of more unity. That's a great. That's a really great. Um, that's a really great quote and a really great comment from our from our viewer. Um, yeah, do we have another one or is that it?
0: Uh, there's another one, but it was it was from a little earlier. It, it's just uh, you are a liberal and thus you suck.
1: <laughs> <laughs> this is kind of true. Like if you read "Combat Liberalism" from Mao, there's a part of that there, but like. The title of that essay is like misleading, because like yes, it is a criticism of liberalism, but it's also like a criticism of like like shitty behaviors from comrades within a party. Like if you're doing this kind of shit, you're just kind of being a liberal. Like you're not really being a revolutionary. That's right. but but yeah, right. Like it's <laughs> like we all have all done this where we've seen that we're like some fucking liberals, man. Like and, and, and it's sad because like I talk this way, right, and then people just assume because. Our political understanding in America is so limited. So, like, if you talk shit about liberals, people just automatically assume that, like, you like Trump and that you're, like, conservative. And I find that very frustrating because it's like, no, like, yeah. I'm a communist. Like, no, <laughs> like, I'm not, like, I'm not, uh, you know, it's weird. It's, it, but it's hard because, again, that political debate is so narrow. And I imagine it's fairly similar in Canada, too.
0: I, that's, there's like, uh, uh, like the liberals uh Liberal Party. There are the liberals in in Canada. And a yeah. few years ago, I had a boss who he thought I was a liberal because I would argue against the conservatives, and I would at times I would defend Justin Trudeau yeah. to them because mostly their criticisms were garbage. But yeah, <laughs> but <laughs> the one day he's just he's just picking, 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 eh? And he's like, "So I haven't got anything out of you at all. You're not getting pissed off at all." And I looked at him, I said, "Man." I'm an anarchist communist. I do not like Justin Trudeau. <laughs> like,
1: yeah. And he just, well, that's the thing. What do you right. say to
0: that? <laughs> right, right.
1: It's like it's like the whole, you know, the whole let's go Brandon phenomenon, right? So, like, <laughs> like yeah. I have no problem saying fuck Joe Biden. Like, I don't yep. need to do some weird, like verbal device to say fuck joe biden we're grown like, up you so can biden.
0: say fuck joe biden yeah we're
1: grown up like <laughs> fuck joe biden yeah like i like fuck that guy like you know he's he, he's creepy smells kids not anymore because of covid but but you know and uh he looks like he's on the verge of death as this yeah. one meme i saw I did but yeah so like you know it, it's it's very tough but like we should i mean we should combat liberalism constantly because It's the ruling ideology, right? Because even the conservatives, like in America, right? Right. Republicans and Democrats are all liberals. They're all small-l liberals in that they believe in, you know, having a government set up to perpetuate capitalism and private property and um, individual rights at the expense of collective freedoms and responsibilities. Like, they all believe in that. Um, Which, if you tell some conservatives that, make them blow their minds because they can't (laughs) think of themselves as – but you're all liberals. Like – you're all liberals. (laughs) And if you're not liberals, like it it really breaks down to like three camps. You have liberals, you have fascists, and then you have the left or like communist, socialists. Right. And we're a bunch of,
0: you can, you can just lump us all together for now.
1: (laughs) You can lump us all together for now. And then there's, then there are deviations. Right. But like in general, most people are liberals. And so it's like, you know, what Mao's getting at in that essay is basically saying like, good party discipline and being a good comrade or being a good cadre within the party right mm-hmm. a dedicated member who goes above and beyond and really helps move the revolutionary cause like if you do these sort of aberrant shitty behaviors you're really nothing more than a liberal and you're wasting everybody's time and that's okay. i think super relevant yeah so the the two really important essays in the book are on practice on contradiction um, both published in 1937. Um, these are some of the most theoretical works of Mao. And really he gets into explaining both the value of practice and understanding the world. That's kind of the first essay. And the second essay is understanding the real dynamics about what contradictions really are and how they manifest and how we as sort of revolutionary actors should think about them. So with on practice, um, Mao basically goes into discuss, to discussing dialectical materialism, which we've talked about before, a big fancy term, right? What does that mean? Basically, what that means is it's a blending of empiricism, you know, understanding through the senses, you know, that we understand through perceptions of the world that we gain from the senses. and the conceptual. So you have the perceptual, what we see, what we take in, what we hear, taste, smell, touch, and the conceptual, what we develop, what we perceive and then conceive of based on our perceptions. Right. And it's the interrelationship between those two and our relationship to outside material conditions that develops our understanding of knowledge of the world. That's essentially what it is. Right. Right. So it's like, so Mao basically in the essay, he's like, I'm not a hardcore materialist nor right, am right. Uh, in the sense of like like this or not empir- materialist, but I'm not a hardcore empiricist in the sense that I think everything is the senses, nor am I an idealist in the sense that everything is just ideas, there's nothing connected to material reality. I'm a blending of the two, and that blending of the two is dialectical materialism it's the inner relationship between uh understanding the world through senses, perceiving them, experiencing them, interacting with the world, and then developing logical conceptual ideas. Based on what you experience,
0: yeah and
1: I've, I've, yeah
0: I've heard like uh people describe like Mao's description of dialectical materialism as kind of the new uh like kind of the the evolution of the idea uh, yes it, it became more much more described and much more in depth under Mao's uh, kind of ideas
1: absolutely and I would also say like it also becomes more like again like tangible right and practical right right you know and and so um, it really does come about understanding the relationship between what you experience in the world and then how you interpret that in the world. And so, like, you know, he sort of talks about the difference between logical knowledge and perceptual knowledge. Like, perceptual knowledge is just what we take in. Logical knowledge is just what we sort of conceive. And then he sort of talks about conceptual knowledge, which is the blending of those two. And and how we need to do that um, consistently in order for us to understand things, Um, you know. And so I'm trying to think if there's like a specific quote here. Not really, but that's kind of like the general that's kind of the gist of on practice. It's short, but it's very good. The other essay, which is longer, which is, I think, a little bit more, I guess, important is the essay on contradiction, where he goes into explaining why contradictions are so important to Marxism. So why are contradictions so important to Marxism? This is something when you hear Marxist talk a lot, you'll talk about how, oh, capitalism is falling under the weight of its own contradictions. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, we have the contradiction between the workers and the owners. What does contradiction mean? And what that basically means is the unity of opposites. That's the basic law of materialist dialectics. It's the, as he writes, but the law of contradiction in things that, that there's always going to be two forces or sometimes more, that are going to be conflict con- in conflict with one another. But in reality, there's the capacity for them to become one and that you can't have the one without the other, right? So in capitalism, you can't have the working class without the owning class. And you can't have the owning class without the working class, right? right? right. Those go together. Not only do they go together, but they are in conflict with one another. Right. So that's a contradiction, right? And so – um, you know, as, as he writes, like, cause he basically says like, this is the dialectical materialist worldview versus the metaphysical worldview, which is basically everything else or sort of general historical philosophy, like the sort of thinking of things as ideas in and of themselves or just pure empiricism, right. um, or as he calls it in other, you know, in other contexts, he sort of calls it like vulgar evolutionism or mechanical materialism, but, you know, um, you know, But he talks about how um, – I'll, I'll quote from him. He says, as opposed to the metaphysical world outlook, the world outlook of materialist dialectics holds that in order to understand the development of a thing, we should study it internally and in its relations with other things. In other words, the development of things should be seen As their internal and necessary self-movement, while each thing in its movement is interrelated to the interests on the things around it. So there's two things going on there, right? So if you have a contradiction, you're going to be studying the two things within that contradiction. And you're also going to be studying the the outside forces – that involve those two being the way that they are, right? right? So when it comes to that worker-owner divide, right? Not only are you going to to understand and study the divide between, or the contradiction between the worker and the owner, you're also gonna be understanding the forces outside of it that will help you understand why someone is a worker and why someone's an owner and why those contradictions exist.
0: Right, and the history and the context, yeah, like, yeah. It's, (laughs) you cannot separate these things. (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> right. They all go together. This is the, di- this is dialectical way of thinking, right? Yeah. Is that, you know, if people want to know, like, if, you, and like, to even break it down even you know, more basic, like, dialectics is understanding the interrelationship of everything. Yeah. That, that there is no linear line that gets you from one place to the other, that we are constantly in interactions with other things. And those interactions are constantly molding and shaping who we are what the world is and how it functions and understanding those interrelationships and understanding that kind of everything is connected, um, is kind of important. I mean, to me, it's like, I know there are some spiritual disciplines that sort of talk about this, especially Buddhism, the sort of interconnectedness of everything. Right. right. And, and dialectics are very much like that and understanding that everything is connected. And in order to really understand a thing, you have to understand what it's in relation to and what it's in contradiction of. So it's, uh, it's really kind of neat in that regard um, he also talks about like um, you know you have the primary contradiction and the primary aspect of the contradiction so a primary contradiction to go back to our example is workers and owners right that's the primary contradiction right right now there might be as there might be aspects within that contradiction that are contradictory in and of themselves right so like let's say within the owners, you might have two owners who are trying to vie to own the firm, right? right? right. And that's a contradiction within them. Let's say within the workers, you have workers who want to start a union and organize and workers that don't, and there's that conflict, right? And so Mao is encouraging us not only only to understand the primary contradiction, i.e. workers versus owners, but also a primary aspect within that primary contradiction, which is something like understanding that some of your comrades at work may not want to be a part of the union yeah. and some do, and that's going to be a conflict, right? Or like
0: management versus the union or because management is yes. very much representative of the owner, but also is a worker.
1: <laughs> right. Or the contradiction between rank and file union members and union leadership. Right. And how those can often be contradictory with each other, right? Yeah. So in any situation, understanding that primary contradiction and then the primary aspect of the contradiction is, is super super important um so that's sort of the main few takeaways from you know so you have and then he also like he calls them like the principal and non principle aspects of a contradiction because you know not all contradictions are made alike and i think that's super important to kind of understand Mao's thought um and understanding that you know some and to sort of skip ahead and to talk about um on the correct handling of contradictions among the people, 1957, which is the other long essay that's like super important. Right. He talks about the idea of antagonistic contradictions and non-antagonistic contradictions. Okay. So what does he mean by that? So what he said, what what Mao writes is that in socialist society, it, you know, in societies, you're going to have like a like a antagonistic Contradiction, that's workers versus owners, right? Right. So that's antagonistic. It's fundamentally conflictual, right? But it is the contradiction nonetheless because they're interrelated. With a non-antagonistic contradiction, what that is is that there is a contradiction that does exist in society, but it's among the workers themselves. So, a, so for example, a non-antagonistic contradiction within social society could be workers and peasants. And their needs and their desires, right? Now, this is something that's been brought up a lot when I've discussed this stuff, especially with my wife, who I bounce ideas off of a lot. And she's like, so what's the difference between like the peasantry and the workers? Aren't they all workers? And it's like, yeah, they are. But like <laughs> there are there are differences within that, right? It's For like sure. the peasantry, like they live on the land. They largely live off of what they produce. Whereas the worker, somebody who is like the proletariat who works in like a factory or works in an office, like they're working for a wage. Presidents don't necessarily work for a wage. They're working for their produce and then they may receive some form of compensation for that, but it's not in the form of a wage. Right. But they're both workers. They don't own it. Right. Right. And so within social societies, you're going to have non-antagonistic contradictions, basically conflicts, you know. The, the one thing I really, I, and I can't help but do this because I do this almost every time I talk about this stuff, but I always bring up Star Trek. So like, the thing I love about Star Trek is that if anybody's ever watched it, it's basically like a future utopia where humanity has largely figured out its problems and whatnot. But there are still conflicts within that system, right? Yeah. People still have interpersonal problems. People still have, uh, Diplomatic issues. There's all kinds of things, right? Those would be within the system itself. Those would be considered non-antagonistic contradictions. We're hashing out problems that we have within a system that we all agree on, right? And that's kind of what it is. And that's where he gets into the idea of unity, criticism, unity, where he's talking about how we need to vigorously debate and discuss ideas in an open in an open atmosphere, and 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 in doing so, we will get to a correct understanding, and maybe we can get to some level of agreement and unity. And so, you know, big people often assume like, Oh, you know, Mao super authoritarian, whatever. But if you actually read what he was saying, like his whole argument was within a given so- social system, there can be vigorous public debate and there should be vigorous public debate. Right. Where he drew the line was on, not non-antagonistic contradictions, but antagonistic contradictions. So an antagonistic one that would exist in social, socialist society would be the workers, those who support the revolution and the counter-revolutionaries or the reactionaries, those who would actively seek to undermine the goals of the revolution. And, and, uh, which brings up, I think, a useful question, which is that what if those who are the counter-revolutionaries, what if those who are the reactionaries are actually the ones who are the true revolutionaries what if they're the ones who are actually carrying out the real goals of the society and the workers that are buying into the system are actually the ones who are actually holding back a better society as a result of um, buying into the system as it is right so like this is where you can get into, you know i think complicated areas right because it's like there's a situation where those who could be deemed revolutionary are actually counter-revolutionary, and vice versa.
0: Right. Yeah. So like see, that,
1: I think that's troubling.
0: <laughs> yeah. I. I mean, I guess it depends on where your society is at the moment, yeah. right? Like, uh, if, if, and the goal too. Like, if the goal is to take it back to a sort of capital society, if you have a mm-hmm. socialist society, and the goal is to overthrow your uh, socialist society in order to take it back to capital then of mm-hmm. course you know it from our perspective the lines are drawn right <laughs> like you've got yeah, exactly
1: <laughs> exactly so, and I think that's a good point and 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 I and I would I would further argue like that you know that was kind of what Mao was getting at with with what he was saying is that you know those who would seek the restoration of capitalism the restoration of imperialism, those are people we would not maybe necessarily grant, you know, the same kind of political liberties within our system as we would to those who support the socialist government. Right. Mm. And again, that, again, it's, it's, that's a heavy question of like, right. Yeah. If, if you can restrict the freedom of speech for certain people, doesn't that necessarily mean that in the future you can kind of restrict the freedom of speech of everyone? Well, and uh,
0: and yeah. I, I don't want to, uh, like, I'm not an expert on any of this by any stretch, but I think yeah. there has been cases in, in some socialist societies where they have done that. Uh, they've called anarchists counter-revolutionaries and yes. have tried to oppress those voices when those were workers. And, and, and in my view, those workers had a legitimate gripe with the state, but the state mm-hmm. didn't uh, agree with that.
1: Right. Right. And that's really the ultimate question is that to what extent are we placing in the masses or like the people for just the state? Because I don't think those are the same thing. And I think that it's important to make a distinction between the two. Yeah. And I think sometimes that it can be misconstrued that the masses or like the people is actually what the government wants rather than what the people want. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Now, they're, I'm not saying all, that's.
0: Yeah. They're often very separate.
1: <laughs> right. And I'm not saying that's the case with like Mao's China. Like in 1957, right. you know, eight years from the revolution, like the majority of the people of that country supported the revolution and wanted it. Right. It's, and, 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 and there were people's material conditions who improved, including the peasants, um, as a result of some forms of collectivized agriculture, which Mao writes about. But ultimately, I do think these are are, I think, important questions for us to ask as socialists broadly or or communists right. or whatever, is to think about, you know, as we're building, as we seek to build a better society, as we seek to develop alternatives to capitalism, what are ways that we can, you know, have you know what Mal calls unity, criticism, unity, and have that sense of open dialogue and debate and free and expression while not jeopardizing the goals of the revolution one. By letting counter-revolutionary forces fight against it, and two, n- labeling anybody who even remotely has a criticism as counter-revolutionary and not hearing them out. Right, right. So, like, th- I think I think that's a rel- I think that's a really important point. Yeah. Um. So, you know, again, I I don't think like Mao's necessarily wrong in saying like these counter-revolutionary people, like we should like kind of stamp them out and get them out of here because they're fi- they're fighting against our goals. But at the same time, like. Who gets to define who's a counter-revolutionary and who doesn't? Yeah. Like who who defines that, right? It
0: isn't always and, a clear line.
1: No, right? <laughs> it's not. And even like – and even he acknowledges in the essays like he's like there are going to be times where the government fucks up. Like he's going to – there are going to be times where we are un, 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 unintentionally going to persecute innocent people. Like we we know that's going to happen but – it's like in the service of this like larger goal. Like we know this shit's going to happen. The goal is to find out where it's happening and stop it, mm-hmm. but to not move away from our goals. And I think, again, that's the tricky question, right? Is like because we live in a, in a world that is of global capitalism, right? If you're trying to build a system that is openly antagonistic with the global capitalist system, you're going to face severe problems pushback especially in the form of violence in the form of military in the form of counter revolutionary activity in the form of clandestine military operations or covert espionage and so on like you're going to experience these things which is why you know countries have to have militaries it's 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 because it's in direct opposition to this sort of imperialist capitalist structure and 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 i think those are i think those are important questions right and it's like you know, and it's important like to understand that, you know, it's like you sometimes you can you can become it's like it's like the Batman thing, right? Like you either die here or you live long enough to see yourself become a villain. Like, <laughs> right, yeah, like there's yeah. like there's a part of that that's true in the sense that like, you know, maybe you see yourself as like this revolutionary figure. But in reality, what you're actually doing is is actively harming people. Right. Again, I'm not saying that's what Mao did or whatever. What I'm saying is like We're not these are I think, judgment
0: at this moment. <laughs> no, 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 no.
1: And and I wouldn't. I mean, in general, I think that the Chinese revolution was an immense success. And despite the contradictions within this the Chinese system, I mean, you know, hundreds of millions of people have been lifted out of poverty. Like it's a you know, like they had two COVID deaths in 2021. They had two, <laughs> like. People think that number is crazy, but it's not like it's it's if you actually track some of their numbers, it's they've largely been able to handle the pandemic. And if you look at countries that have been able to handle the pandemic, they either have at, like like outwardly communist or socialist governments or they have, you know, like deeply de- social democratic systems, like say like yeah. South Korea, which yeah. has like a universal health care system. Right. So, you know. Clearly, they're doing something right in the sense that their governments work. But again, I can understand people's concerns about personal liberty and so forth. But again, I think it's a lot easier to sort of stand back and say, oh, well, you know, they could have offered more people this and that and the other. But it's like – but they're working within the concrete conditions in which they're in. That's right. And the goal is to build a better system. And so um, like for example – and the PSL has reported about this. Like China has actually been fairly transparent in terms of how – certain policies they've implemented about COVID-19 have not been terribly successful. And they've been publishing their results pretty openly. It's not like they're hiding anything, you know. And if they were hiding anything, I would have a feeling like it wouldn't be hidden for very long because whenever the government, the U.S. government tries to hide anything, it almost always comes to
0: light (laughs) generally
1: (laughs) from a leak or some other thing, right? There's always some whistleblower usually saying something. So again, I'm not saying like the Chinese system is like perfect or they doesn't have problems or I don't have criticisms of it. But I'm saying that, like, they are certainly a hell of a lot more transparent about what they've done with COVID-19 than the U.S. government has been, which and, and you know, a recent article I read was discussing about how the United States is going to stop um, federal government. The United States is going to stop um, uh, collecting daily COVID hosp- uh, deaths from hospitals yeah. so that that information is going back to the states. And so the federal government's just not collecting that data anymore. Um, which is appalling when you consider how bad the pandemic has, has resurged again in the United States. Yeah. So um, uh, there's so much more to cover in the book, but we we're getting towards the end here. And I, I want to keep this at a pretty decent length. Um, But I I have one,
0: I I have one comment here that I I thought I I thought I should bring up. Uh, Some random geek says, I mean, I agree with Mao's sentiment on landlords for sure.
1: Oh, absolutely, absolutely, <laughs> yeah, and absolutely. I, I got to agree um, with that. Yeah, it's like that classic story. That's that classic anecdote. It's apocryphal. I don't know if it's even true, but someone like visited China. It's like he goes to Mao and he says, "Like um, Mao, how many comrade Mao? How many men have you killed?" And he says, I don't know. I've, I, I, you know, I've only dealt with landlords <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> yeah. or something like that. I'm like messing it up, but it's like, um, you know, uh, they're not men, they're landlords or something like that. Right. And so, yeah, no, they were, they were pretty harsh against the landlords, which I'm, I'm very okay with. Uh, yeah. I think that's fine. Um, and I can say that more now because my dad is no. My dad was actually renting out his house for a
0: while. Oh, <laughs> my dad was a landlord,
1: but he's not doing it anymore. He's selling his go. house. He's getting out of it. He realized it's a fool's errand. So, right yay! I can go back to completely and thoroughly trashing landlords without being a hypocrite. So, <laughs> yeah. but um, but here's the thing: capitalism makes hypocrites of us all. It's true, um, unfortunately. But no. So I guess to recap, like, I highly recommend people um, get this little book. It's 200 pages. You can actually get it on audio um, through Audible um, and maybe other, you know, wonderful uh, ebook and audiobook sellers. The introduction by Zizek is interesting, um, and I think that it's a really nice little collection of Mao's writings. Um, behind me, somewhere, these like little brown books right here. I just picked these up. These are the collected works of selected works of Mao. And this little red book right here is the the little red book, the the quotations from Chairman Mao. I picked up recently. So, um, you know, if you're going to read anything of Mao, either read like the little red book or read this, and it kind of gives you a sense of like his ideas. I think Mao more than any other sort of you know pantheon of Marxist thinkers who was who is himself a revolutionary like as you know as we've been discussing tonight really emphasize the role of practice in whatever you're doing yeah. and that you know your the, your theoretical work is important but it's also equally important to get out there and actually see what the world is like and you know and i will sort of finish with this like the last chapter is a book called the talk on questions of philosophy it's from 1964 and it's this kind of like it's mal like unplugged like he's just kind of he's he's talking about all kinds of shit like at some point he's talking about how like we're like do you think that, that horses are going to stay the way they are forever? Or do you think humans are going to stay the way they are forever? Like humans and cows, like we're going to all change because of evolution. He talks about like think millions of years from now, things are going to be different. And like he's doing all kinds of like deep speculative stuff. Right. But he opens up the essay talking about how intellectuals, people work in the universities. He's not, and he excludes the science people because he's like the science people, they're doing more practical stuff in the labs. We need them there but for the humanities people you know go live in the go live in the countryside for like 2 months and uh you know and he basically says i don't care if you get like really sick like you should only come back if you're on like the verge of death otherwise <laughs> stay in the countryside learn from the peasants learn from your situation because you will learn by doing mm. and he talks about how like he basically says like He basically tells people, like, guys, guess what? You know what? You talk about how you're from the University of Peking. Well, guess what? I'm from the University of Life. Like, I'm from the University of Hard Knocks, motherfuckers. (laughs) Like, what are you going to (laughs) do? I can't remember exactly what he says, but it's kind of amazing. Let me see if I can find it. It's kind of awesome. Oh, okay. Um, He says, they argue about which university is better. Peking University, which is like the most prestigious university at the time. Or People's University, which was another one that was set up that was sort of like a lower tier, right? It's like Harvard versus University of Boston. For my part, I'm a graduate of the University of the Greenwoods. I learned a bit there. In the past, I studied Confucius. Then he sort of goes on and talks about how he was a school teacher. He talks about how he lived among the peasants for like six months, this and that and the other. But but that's like I think the great takeaway from Mao is that understanding of practice. Mm -hmm. Practice, practice, practice. Care about what you're actually doing because – Theory don't mean shit if you're not actually trying to do something more with it. And I think that's an incredibly important insight for us as Marxists. And I think it's why Mao left such an impression on people, especially in the 1960s. Um, not just in his own country with the Cultural Revolution and obviously the actual Revolution 1949, but groups that were set up in the United States, like the Black Panthers in the United States were heavily, heavily influenced by Mao, by Mao and considered themselves Maoists. Right. Um, you know, there were members of the Weather Underground, which is another radical group who considered themselves as Maoists. Like Maoism was very popular in the late 1960s and early 1970s, especially in the sort of broader social revolts of 1968 which have been written about very eloquently from people like Tariq Ali to Alain Badia to others understanding like the the, the you know we've talked a little bit about 1968 when we talked about Nixon land and right, the right. democratic convention um but yeah no I think uh Mao's a really interesting thinker and you could really tell that he cared about what he did. He, he, he really loved teaching people. I could get a sense like from reading him that he really loved teaching people. And he loved to use like high theoretical concepts from Marxism, but also like in but he also loved using like Confucius and, and Lao Tzu and Shang Tse and like other Chinese thinkers and novelists and people who, you know, people that any Chinese person would know or read um to sort of get a point across. So, he was, he was, you know, he was very interesting and, um, and uh, his influence is certainly felt uh, um, to this day. So, yeah, I highly recommend the book. Um, people should check it out. This is a part of, like I said, it's part of a series of books that Verso has put out over the last 10 years or so called Revolutions. So there's one from Trotsky. There's one from Fidel Castro. There's one from... Um, there's one from Thomas Jefferson, the Declaration of Independence. There's okay. Jesus. Um, yep. Terry Eagleton did sort of a radical socialist reading of the Gospels with Jesus um, and uh, a bunch of other ones. But, yeah, uh, it's uh, Rose Pierre, whatever, you know, a whole bunch of different ones. But, yeah, so the uh, uh, really liked reading this a whole lot. Really has given me a broad perspective now that, you know, now that I've kind of read – You know, main things from sort of the major thinkers of Marxism, Marx, Engels, Lenin and Mao. So it's been it's been kind of a journey over the last couple of years. It's been kind of fun. And I look forward to reading more of his stuff in the future and reading other revolutionary work and sharing it with you. all
0: Right on. So uh, I guess what are we covering next time?
1: Next time we were going to be doing When China Rules the World by Martin Jacques. But I decided not to do that book. Okay. And I decided to do something that I read when I was recovering from my sinus surgery. Um, it was the first book I read after I got out of surgery, and it was wonderful. It's a short little book called Existentialism is a Humanism by Jean-Paul Sartre. Oh, and uh, the French existentialist thinker, Marxist thinker, um, and I think it's really, really cool. I think it's going to be something that's going to be right at the alley of people who listen to this podcast. People who are very much interested in the intersection of sort of radical politics, skepticism, atheism and humanism and all that's in there. And he says some really cool shit about like, um, I think the kind of atheism that he was sort of believing in and that he fought for was very, very radical and very, very cool. So I look forward to sharing that with y'all next time.
0: Right on. So where can
1: people find you? So people can find my work at justinclark.org. That's where I have all of my articles. It's where I post every episode of the podcast for people to view. Um, You can also check out um, my writing at Midwestern Marks, the wonderful publication there. I have three articles that put them. And um, also, I'm a frequent contributor to the Truth Seeker magazine, which is the oldest free thought publication in America. My article on Paul Kurtz, the humanist thinker, um, will be one of their main articles in the newest issue. Um, yeah. And you don't have to pay to see it because I'm going to put the article online for you to read for free. Um, and so you can see it there. And actually the blog version is already up on my website. It's the exuberant skepticism of Paul Kurtz, if you want to read it. Um, and then I'm also on social media, although I'm taking a break from social media. So I'm on Instagram, I'm on LinkedIn, but I haven't really done much of anything with it. Um, so yeah, just check out my stuff, justinclark.org and you know, kind of, you'll pretty much find anything about me there.
0: Nice. Well, thank you, Justin.
1: Thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure to be back. I love doing this and, uh, and it's really great to be able to, to uh, have these conversations with you again. It's been a for real sure. pleasure.
0: That's all, folks. Thanks for watching or listening. Remember to share this show with your friends or on the social media site that you use the most. Thank you to everyone who supports this show on Patreon. It's really appreciated and it helps me spend more time on this and my other projects. If you want to contribute, you can do that at patreon.com slash skeptical Or you can buy me a coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash skeptical if you can't contribute financially, then a five-star rating or a re- and a review on the podcast app of your choice or on one of the podcast review sites like Podchaser or RateMyPodcast.com would be great. If you want to find more from me, make sure to check out the show notes or check out my link tree. That's linktr.ee slash Court. You can find all my social media stuff there as well as links to my other show, From Many People's Strength, which is a podcast about Saskatchewan politics, and a project I'm involved in with my friend Damien Marie at Hope that's called Atheist Humanist Leftist Revolutionaries. My Twitter is at Skeptical Lefty, and my Facebook page is The Mind of a Skeptical Leftist. You can email me at mindofaskepticalleftist at gmail.com, and if you want to be a guest on the show or know someone I should reach out to, then feel free to let me know. You can book interviews in my available time slots on my Calendly, which is also found in my Linktree. Thanks so much for listening, and let's try to make sure we're applying critical thinking and reason skepticism when we're attacking the system. If we get caught up in bad thinking, we can derail ourselves.